0: Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home addition. Maybe even an addition on that addition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.
1: Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zannie minton The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Each week, we select three of the defining stories from the paper. We think they are essential pieces of insight and analysis that will help inform you on the go. You can listen to them in just a moment. But first, over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's coming up. Thanks, Annie. It's May the 9th, 2019. I'm Christopher Lockwood, The Economist's Europe Editor. Our cover this week reports on rising tension between America and Iran. Policy is being driven by hardliners. American hawks believe in using economic pressure to topple the Iranian regime and bombs to stop its nuclear program. Iranian mullahs and their revolutionary guards are tightening their grip at home and lashing out abroad. The potential for miscalculation is large and growing. On the home front for America, a standoff at the southern border has distracted attention from a much bigger change. The Mexican-born population in America is shrinking. And what's in a name? Our Paris bureau chief analyses what shifting trends in baby names say about how France is changing. Well, these are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. So if you'd like to read more or listen to the full audio edition, please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. But first, the brewing conflict between America and Iran. As tensions rise, both sides need to step back.
2: The drums of war are beating once again. An American aircraft carrier strike group is steaming towards the Persian Gulf, joined by B-52 bombers after unspecified threats from Iran. John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, says any attack on America or its allies will be met with unrelenting force. In Tehran, meanwhile... President Hassan Rouhani says Iran will no longer abide by the terms of the deal signed with America and other world powers, whereby it agreed to strict limits on its nuclear programme in return for economic relief. Iran now looks poised to resume its slow but steady march towards the bomb, giving American hawks like Mr Bolton further grievances. Just four years ago, America and Iran were on a different path. After Barack Obama offered to extend a hand if Iran's leaders unclenched their fist, the two sides came together, leading to the nuclear deal. That promised to set back the Iranian nuclear programme by more than a decade, a prize in itself – and just possibly to break the cycle of threat and counter-threat that has dogged relations since the Iranian revolution 40 years ago. Today, hardliners are ascendant on both sides. Bellicose rhetoric has returned. Mr Bolton and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, believe in using economic pressure to topple the Iranian regime and bombs to stop its nuclear programme. In Tehran, the mullahs and their revolutionary guards do not trust America. They are tightening their grip at home and lashing out abroad. In both countries, policy is being dictated by intransigents who risk stumbling into war. It is probably too late to save the nuclear deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, Iran has been complying, but critics in America complain that its temporary restrictions will ultimately legitimise the nuclear programme and that the deal will not stop Iran from producing missiles or sowing murder and mayhem abroad. President Donald Trump pulled America out of the agreement last year, calling it a disaster. It is not, but that damage is done. Renewed sanctions on Iran and the threat to punish anyone who trades with it have wrecked what is left of the agreement. Last week, America cancelled waivers that let some countries continue to buy Iranian oil. It is extending sanctions to Iran's metals exports. Instead of reaping the benefits of cooperation, Iran has been cut off from the global economy. The rial has plummeted. Inflation is rising and wages are falling. The economy is in crisis. Predictably, rather than bringing Iran's leaders to their knees, America's belligerence has caused them to stiffen their spines. Even Mr Rouhani, who championed the nuclear deal, has begun to sound like a hawk. Having long hoped that Europe at least would honour the promise of the deal, he is exasperated. On the anniversary of America's exit from the agreement, on May 8th, he said that Iran would begin stockpiling low-enriched uranium and heavy water, which would, in sufficient quantities, breach its terms. Without economic progress in 60 days, he said, Iran will not consider any limit on enrichment. All this suggests that Iran will start moving closer to being able to build a nuclear bomb. As he walks his country towards the brink, Mr Rouhani has three audiences in mind. The first is his own hardliners, who detest the nuclear deal and have been pressing him to act. He appears to have appeased them for now. On May 7th, the front page of an ultra-conservative newspaper declared, Iran lighting match to set fire to the JCPOA. He is also trying to get European companies to break with America. He will not succeed. Despite European Union attempts to design mechanisms that allow European businesses to skirt American sanctions, most of them have decided that the American market is too valuable. Iran's most important audience is America, with which it seems to be playing an old game – Iranian leaders have long seen the nuclear programme as their best bargaining chip with the West. Though they have claimed that it is peaceful, UN inspectors have found enough evidence to suggest otherwise. The technology is the same, whether power or a weapon is the ultimate goal. Iran's centrifuges can produce a bomb faster than sanctions can topple the regime, goes the logic of hardliners but they are wielding a double-edged sword. The threat of obtaining a nuclear weapon is useless if it does not seem credible, and if it is credible, it risks provoking military action by America or Israel. The potential for miscalculation is large and growing. American troops are within miles of Iranian-backed forces in Iraq and Syria. Its warships are nose-to-nose with Iranian patrols in the Gulf – America recently declared the Guards a terrorist group. Then Iran did the same to American forces in the Middle East. Officials on both sides say their intent is peaceful, but who can believe them? America's accusations that Iran has been planning to attack American forces or its allies in the Middle East are suspiciously unspecific. Violence by Iran's proxies may be just the sort of provocation that leads America to launch a military strike. Mr Pompeo once suggested that he preferred American sorties to nuclear talks with Iran. Mr Bolton penned an article in 2015 in the New York Times entitled To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran. Now, even Mr Rouhani appears to agree that the way forward lies with provocation and escalation. A nuclear Iran would spur proliferation across the Middle East. Bombing would not destroy Iranian nuclear know-how, but it would drive the programme underground, making it impossible to monitor and thus all the more dangerous. The only permanent solution is renewed negotiation. Mr Trump a harsh critic of America's foreign wars, therefore needs to keep the likes of Mr Bolton in check. He will face pressure from hardline politicians at home and opposition in the region, not least from Israel. Doing deals, though, is a Trump trademark. The president has shown an ability to change direction abruptly, as with North Korea. A new war is not in his interest – even if being hard on Iran is part of his brand. The Europeans can help him by urging Iran to keep within the deal and condemning it if it leaves. Mr Rouhani, who spurned Mr Trump in the past, now says he is willing to talk with the deal's other signatories if today's agreement is the basis. That has so far been a non-starter for the Trump administration. It should not be. As the threat of a conflict grows, all sides need to head back to the negotiating table.
0: Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home addition, maybe even an addition on that addition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. (music)
1: Next up, what happens after a tipping point? Despite what headlines from the southern border might suggest, the Mexican-American population is shrinking.
3: Walk through Pilsen, a Chicago neighbourhood that is home to successive waves of immigrants and two stories unfold in the surrounding streets. The first is seen in the abundance of taquerias, in bright murals of Mexican cowboys and dancing women or in remittance and travel shops that advertise their business ties to Mexico. The other story is punctuated by vinyl record shops and vegan cafes on fashionable 18th Street. In 2000, the district's population was 89% Hispanic and notably poor, Now, as it gets wealthier, Mexicans are themselves being replaced, sometimes by immigrants, notably Asians, and more often by young, childless white Americans eager to live in new apartments convenient for jobs downtown. Some protest. Ruth Machulis, in the placard-filled head office of the Pilsen Alliance, an activist group, passionately vows direct action and to fight back against rampant development. But many locals are phlegmatic, seeing a routine turn in the fortunes of the current population. From the 1950s onwards, Mexican immigrants poured into Pilsen. They replaced Poles, Czechs and Italians, filling pews in their brick churches and acquiring their businesses. Now they too are moving up and on. Each ethnic group and city has its own renovation time, says Julio Velazquez, a resident for 23 years. We're relocating. Nobody is being pushed out. Mr Velazquez is lucky. Brought to America as a child, he prospered and bought his shop from a departing pole. A few doors on, Sonia Soseda tells of similar success. She arrived in 1972 and recalls meeting a pair of towering ancient Polish women, Kitty and Rosie, who ran a bar. They disliked Mexicans like her. She became a university graduate and accountant and invested her savings to run a creperia from their former bar. Her 83-year-old father owns and runs a bakery next door. Business is fine, she says, but rising costs may prompt both to sell and go. Now we see the same changes as polls did before, she says. Such stories reflect broader changes for many Mexican-Americans, especially in bigger cities like Chicago. For one thing, their overall numbers are falling after four decades of growth. Andrew Seeley of the Migration Policy Institute, or MPI, in Washington, points out that since 2007... A tidal wave of Mexicans going to America has slowed to a dribble as unauthorised migrants have been replaced by legal ones. Data from the Pew Research Centre show that patrolmen on the southern border arrested 1.6 million Mexicans in 2000, 98% of all those who were detained. Since then, Mexicans have mostly given up frontier hopping. Last year, the Border Patrol seized only 152,000 Mexicans, just 38% of a much smaller total. It is a different story for Guatemalans, Hondurans and other Central Americans who do still come illegally or claiming asylum in large numbers. In fact, the total number of Mexican-born immigrants in America has stopped climbing and started to fall – notes Randy Caps, also from MPI. In 2016-17 to 17 alone, the number fell from 11.6 million to 11.3 million, a sharp dip that is probably continuing. That is despite the lowest unemployment in America in half a century. Previous spells of strong growth also drew in Mexican labour. No longer... Higher incomes, more jobs and an ageing population in Mexico have all shrunk its pool of potential migrants. Fewer Mexican migrants in all and more who come with papers – America probably now has more legal than illegal Mexican migrants – a notable tipping point have other effects. One is that new arrivals are better educated than the people who crossed earlier, who were generally low-skilled – A report published on May 9th by MPI points out that whereas only 6% of recent Mexican arrivals had a college degree in 2000, some 17% had one by 2017. The Institute estimates that there are 678,000 Mexican graduates in America, one of the biggest stocks of skilled immigrants and perhaps most important for successful integration, such newcomers are also the most likely to have good English skills, whereas Mexicans historically were slow to acquire the language. What does this mean for America? Mr Seeley is hopeful. He sees Mexicans following the path set by southern and eastern Europeans, predicting a huge change in the next 20 years, as far fewer Spanish-speaking migrants come in that could be a boon to those already there. One lesson after previous decades of high migration ended, as when a 1924 law abruptly choked inflows of Asians and some Europeans, is that it can herald a period when existing migrants, and importantly their American-born children, integrate successfully. Mr Caps also sees Mexicans in a situation analogous to European countries before. There was plenty of discrimination against Italians and Poles a century ago for being Catholic, Jewish or insufficiently white in the eyes of Protestant Americans. But when a slowdown in arrivals is followed by social mixing intermarrying, better education and rising incomes among migrants, discrimination begins to disappear, he says. In effect, the designation of a group as white depends less on their skin colour than their fortunes. That is relevant for a debate that periodically grips America in which demographers, white nationalists and others speculate about when the country's non-white population will become the majority. A census estimate suggests that might happen as early as the 2040s. Perhaps, but any calculation depends on who is defining a given group as white or not. By then, instead, that category may include the biggest single group of migrants, Mexican-Americans, just as it now includes descendants of Poles and Italians. For all its upheaval, Pilsen may show a path ahead.
1: And finally, to France, where Marie is out and Yanis is in. So, what do today's baby names say about how France is changing?
0: A few years ago, a French couple tried to name their baby girl Nutella. It had a ring to it, and the French state had in 1993 relaxed strict rules about registering names, but the chocolate spread was a step too far, and the parents were overruled. In recent times, though, the parents of little Chanel, Dior, Brittany, and Beyoncé have all had their way. Two new studies suggest that such trends reflect deeper social change. One element is the waning influence of the Catholic Church. Its grip on names was entrenched by Napoleon in 1803, who decreed that all babies should be named after a saint or a figure from ancient history. A century ago, one in eight girls born in France was named Marie. Today, the figure is less than one percent. Jérôme Fouquet, author of one of the studies, says this reflects the terminal stage of the de-Christianisation of France. As Catholicism's hold has eased, American pop culture has stepped in, filling classrooms with Kevins, Jordans and Dylan's. Such names, says the study, have become a class marker. They are also popular in regions which support Marine Le Pen, the populist defender of French cultural tradition. Her campaign for the upcoming European elections is headed by a 23-year-old called Jordan. In a country that bans ethnic or religious census data, names can also serve as a proxy. The number of baby boys named Muhammad has grown sixfold since 1960. The persistence of such names, say some on the nationalist fringe, reflects an integration problem. Ms. Le Pen has argued that naturalized French citizens should adopt a name more adapted to national culture. Absatou C, a French presenter, understandably quit a TV show after a commentator told her that her name was an insult to France, and that her mother should have named her Corinne. On the contrary, suggests a second study by two demographers, Baptiste Coulmont and Patrick Simon. Integration is indeed reflected in baby names, but in a different way. The French-born children of North African immigrants are often still given names from the Maghreb, most commonly Mohamed or Karim. Yet babies born in the third generation follow a broader French trend. The top choice, they say, is Yanis for boys and Sarah for girls. Part of being French these days, it seems, is naming your baby not Marie, but Lina or Mila. International names, the authors note, that everyone can identify with. Well
1: that's just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. With a subscription you can read or listen to all of what we do. The whole paper is read aloud each week. So please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer to get your first 12 issues for twelve dollars or twelve pounds. I'm Christopher Lockwood and in London this is The Economist.
3: is building wealth one of your goals for 2020 if so you're in luck diversity fund is mixing tech with real estate in order to bring superior investment opportunities to everyone Our new fund is SEC qualified to accept investments from all investors, accredited or not. With one investment on our online platform, you'll own a portfolio of institutional-grade commercial real estate assets, all without lifting a finger. Visit diversityfund.com slash economist to learn more and start investing today. You can make this year all about taking your wealth and your portfolio to the next level. One more time, visit diversityfund.com slash economist and use the code economist when you sign up to receive a $20 gift card after you make your first investment.